13. And we were present. Mrs. H. L. Gretton and Mr. Balls appeared in The Lady of Munster. Mr. Sloan, a popular Irish comedian from the provinces, has lent a helping hand. By coming out in a new drama, Mr. Keeley is also announced. The pieces we saw were well got up and carefully acted, so that the patrons of the drama need not dread that. In this instance, the Astley and Olympic actors believe that charity covers a multitude of sins. They don't care who sees their faults the more the better. Behind the scenes, when a certain class of persons, whose antipathy to gratis sea voyages is by no means remarkable, are overtaken by the police and misfortune, when the last legal quibble has been raised upon their case and failed, when, indeed, to use their own elegant phraseology, they are regularly stumped and done up, then and, to do them justice, not till then they resort to confession, and to turning King's evidence against their accomplices, this seems to be exactly the case with the drama, which is evidently in the last stage of decline, the consumption of new subjects having exhausted the supply. The French has been taken from till it has nothing more to give. The Newgate calendar no longer affords materials for an entire dramatic edition of it might be collected a valuable hint this for the syncretic society. That desperate association for producing UN actable dramas the very air is exhausted in a theatrical sense, for life in the clouds has been long voted law, whilst the playwriting craft have already robbed the regions below of every spark of poetic fire, devils are decidedly out of date. In short, and not to mince the matter, as hyenas are said to stave off starvation by eating their own haunches, so the drama must be on its last legs, when actors turn King's evidence, and exhibit to the public how they flirt and quarrel, and eat oysters and drink porter, and scandalize and make fun how, in fact, they disport themselves behind the scenes. A visit to the English opera will gratify those of the uninitiated who are anxious to get acquainted with the manners and customs of the ladies and gentlemen of the corps dramatique at the wing, otherwise than as a sign of dramatic destitution. The piece called, Behind the Scenes, is highly amusing. Mr. Wilde's acting displays that happy medium between jocularity and earnest, which is the perfection of burlesque. Mrs. Selby plays the leading lady without the smallest effort, and invites the first tragedian to her treat of oysters and beer with considerable impressment though supposed to be laboring at the time under the stroke of the headsman's axe. Lastly, it would be an act of injustice to Mr. Selby to pass his spoony negus over in silence. Punch has too brotherly an affection for his fellow actors, to hide their faults, in the hope that, by showing them the in speculum, they may be amended, in all kindness. Therefore, he entreats Mr. Selby, if he be not bent upon hastening his own ruin, if he have any regard for the feelings of an offending audiences, who always witness the degradation of human nature with pain he implores him to provide a substitute for Negus. Every actor knows the difference between portraying imbecility and being silly himself between puerility, as characteristic of a part in posse, and as being a trait of the performer in ass. To this rule Mr. Selby, in this part, is a melancholy exception, for he seems utterly ignorant of such a distinction. Broad as it is he is silly himself, instead of causing silliness in Spoonie. This is the more to be regretted, as whoever witnessed, with us, the first piece, saw in Mr. Selby a respectable representative of an old dandy in Barnaby Rudge. Moreover, the same gentleman island we understand, the adapter of the drama from Boz's tale, that to proves him to be a clever contriver of situations, and an ingenious adept with the pen and scissors. Punch, O are the London C-H-A-R-I-V-A-R-I, Volume 1, for the week ending August 14th, 1841.
The Wife Catchers, A Legend of My Uncle's Boots, in four chapters, chapter III, Haberdashers, continued my friend the boot, are wonderful people, they make the greatest show out of the smallest stock whether of brains or ribbons of any men in the world, a stranger could not pass through the village of Ballybristown without being attracted by a shop which occupied the corner of the market square and the main street, with a window looking both ways for custom. In these windows were displayed sundry articles of use and ornament toys, stationery, perfumery, ribbons, laces, hardware, spectacles, and Dutch dolls. In a glass case on the counter were exhibited patent medicines, Birmingham jewelry, court plaster, and side combs. Behind the counter might be seen Mr. Matthew Tibbins, quite a precedent for country shopkeepers, with uncommonly fair hair and slender fingers, a profusion of visible linen and a most engaging lisp. In addition to his personal attractions, Tibbins possessed a large stock of accomplishments, which, like his goods, might safely challenge competition. He was an acknowledged wit, and retailed compliments and cotton balls to the young ladies who visited his emporium. As a poet, too, his merits were universally known, for he had once contributed a poetic charade to the ladies' almanac. He, moreover, played delightfully on the Jew's harp, knew several mysterious tricks in cards, and was an adept in the science of bread and butter cutting, which made him a prodigious favorite with maiden aunts and side-table cousins. This was the individual whom fate had ordained to cross and thwart Terence in his designs upon the heart of Miss Betty O'Brannigan, and upon whom that young lady, in sport or caprice, bestowed a large dividend of those smiles which Terence imagined should be devoted solely to himself. The man of small wares was, in truth, a dangerous rival. From his very insignificance, had he been a man of spirit or corporal consideration, Terence would have pistoled or thrashed him out of his audacious notions, but the creature was so smiling and submissive that he could not, for the life of him, dirty his fingers with such a contemptible wretch. Thus Tibbins continued flattering and wriggling himself into Miss Betty's good graces, while Terence was fighting and kissing the way to her heart, till the poor girl was fairly bothered between them. Miss Betty O'Brannigan. I should have told you, sir, was an heiress, valued at one thousand pounds in hard cash, living with an old aunt at Rookot Lodge, about six miles from Ballybristown, and to this retreat of the loves and graces might the rival lovers be seen directing their course. After Mass, every Sunday, the haberdasher in a green gig with red wheels, and your uncle mounted on a bit of blood, taking the coal off Tibbins's pipe with the impudence of his air, and the elegant polish of your humble servants. Matters went on in this way for some time Miss O'Brannigan not having declared in favor of either of her sweeters when one bitter cold evening, I remember it was in the middle of January, we were whipped off our peg in the hall, and in company with our fellow laborers, the buckskin continuations, were carried up to your uncle, whom we found busily preparing for a ball, which was to be given that night by the heiress of Rookot Lodge. I confess that my brother and myself felt a strong presentiment that something unfortunate would occur and our forebodings were shared by the buckskins, who, like ourselves, felt considerable reluctance to join in the expedition. Remonstrance, however, would have been idle, we therefore submitted with the best grace we could, and in a few minutes were bestriding Terence's favorite hunter, and crossing the country over ditch, dike, and drain, as if we were tallying at the tail of a fox. The night was dark, and a recent fall of rain had so swollen a mountain stream which lay in our road that when we reached the ford, which was generally passable by foot passengers, Terence was obliged to swim his horse across, 
and to dismount on the opposite side, in order to assist the animal up a steep clay bank which had been formed by the torrent undermining and cutting away the old banks. Although we had received no material damage, you may suppose that our appearance was not much improved by the water and yellow clay into which we had been plunged, and had it been possible, we would have blushed with vexation, on finding ourselves introduced by Terence in a very unseemly state, amidst the titters of a number of young people, into the ballroom at Rukon Lodge. However, we became somewhat reassured, when we heard the droll manner in which he related his swim, with such ornamental flourishes and romantic embellishments as made him an object of general interest during the night. Matthew Tibbins had already taken the field in a blue satin waistcoat and nankeen trousers, at the instant we entered the dancing room. He had commenced lisping to Miss Biddy, in a tender love-subdued tone, a couplet which he had committed to memory for the occasion, when a glance of terrible meaning from Terence's eye met his the unfinished stanza died in his throat, and without waiting the nearer encounter of his dreaded rival, he retreated to a distant corner of the apartment, leaving to Terence the post of honor beside the heiress. Mr. Duffy, said she, accompanying her words with the blandest smile you can conceive, as he approached. What a wonderful escape you have had, dear me, I declare you are dripping wet, will you not change your clothes, and Miss Betty glanced furtively at the buckskins, which, like ourselves, had got thoroughly soaked, oh, by no means, my dear Miss Betty, replied Terence, daily, tease only a frightfully of water that won't hurt them, and then added, in a confidential tone, don't you know I'd go through fire as well as water for one kind look from those deluded eyes, Shame, Mr. Duffy, how can you, responded Miss Biddy, putting her handkerchief to her face to make believe she blushed, isn't it the blessed truth and don't you know it island you darling, oh, Miss Biddy, I'm wasting away like a farthing candle in the dog days I'm going down to my snug grave through your cruelty, the daisies will be growing over me for next Easter ugugug, I've a murdering cough too, and nothing can give me us but yourself, Miss Biddy, cried Terence eagerly. Hush, they'll hear you, said the heiress, I don't care who hears me, replied Terence desperately, I can't stand dying by inches this way, I'll destroy myself, oh, Terence, murmured Miss O'Brannigan, yes, he continued, I loaded my pistols this morning, and I told Barney Dwyer, the dog feeder, to come over and shoot me the first thing he does in the morning, Terence, dear, what do you want, what am I to say, inquired the trembling girl, Say, cried Terence, who was resolved to clinch the business at a word, say that you love me. The handkerchief was again applied to Miss O single quote Brannigan single quote S face, and a faint affirmative issued from the depths of the cambric. Terence's heart hopped like a racket ball in his breast. Give me your hand upon it, he whispered. Miss Betty placed the envied palm, not on his brows, but in his hand, and was led by him to the top of a set which was forming for a country dance from whence they started off at the rate of one of our modern steam engines, to the spirit-stirring tune of haste to the wedding, there was none of the pirouetting, and chasses in, and balancing of your slipshod quadrilles in vogue then it was all life and action, swing corners in a hand gallop, turn your partner in a whirlwind, and down the middle like a flash of lightning, Terence had never acquitted himself so well, he cut, capered, and set to his partner with unusual agility, we naturally participated in the admiration he excited, and in the fullness of our triumph, while brushing past the flimsy nankeens worn by Tibbins, I could not refrain from bestowing a smart kick upon his shins, 
that brought the tears to his eyes with pain and vexation. After the dance had concluded, Terence led his glowing partner to a cool quiet corner, where leaving her, he flew to the side table, and in less time than he would take to bring down a snipe, he was again beside her with a large mug full of hot negus, into which he had put, by way of stiffener, a copious dash of Mountain Dew. How do you like it, my darling? asked Terence, after Miss Biddy had read the maker's name in the bottom of the mug. Too strong, I'm afraid, replied the heiress. Strong, wake as day. Upon my honor, Miss Biddy, cried Mr. Duffy. The result of Terence Duffy's courtship will be given in the next chapter. Songs for the sentimental. Member Ivy, Odina paint her charms to me. I can that she is fair, I can her lips might tempt the beherine with stars compare. Such transient gifts I ne'er did prize. My heart they couldn't win, I did the scorn my genie's eyes but has she won it in. The fairest cheek, alas, may fade beneath the touch of years. The in where light and gladness played may soon grow in W.I. tears. I would love's fire should, to the last, still burn as they begin, and beauty's reign too soon is past. So has she won it in, Lady Morgan's little one, her ladyship, at her last conversa's irony, propounded to punch the following classical poser, how would you translate the Latin words, puella, defectus, putus, dies, into four English interjections, our wooden roshus hammered his pate for full five minutes, and then exclaimed, alas, alack, a well a day. Her ladyship protested that the answer would have done honor to the professor of languages at the London University. The Royal Lion and Unicorn a dialogue. Ground arms. Birdcage walk. Lion. So, how do you feel now? Unicorn. Considerably relieved. Though you can't imagine the stiffness of my neck and legs. Let me see. How long is it since we relieved the griffins? Lion. An odd century or two. But never mind that. For the first time. We have laid down our charge have got out of our state attitudes, and may sit over our pot and pipe at ease. Unicorn, what a fate is ours. Here have we, in our time, been compelled to give the patronage of our countenance to all sorts of rascality have been forced to support robbery, swindling, extortion but it won't do to think of give me the pot. Oh, dear, it had sweet better with my conscience. Had I been doomed to draw a sand cart? Lion, come, come. No unseemly affectation. You, at the best, are only a fiction a quadruped lie. Unicorn, I know naturalists dispute my existence. But if, as you unkindly say, I am only a fiction, why should I have been selected as a supporter of the royal worms? Lion, why, you fool, for that very reason, have you been where you are for so many years, and yet don't know that often, in state matters, the greater the lie the greater the support. Unicorn, right. When I reflect I have greater doubts of my truth, seeing where I am, lion, but here am I in myself the positive majesty, degraded into a petty larceny scoundrel, yes, all my inherent attributes compromised by my position, oh, Hercules, when I remember my native Africa when I reflect on the sweet intoxication of my former liberty the excitement of the chase the mad triumph of my spring. Cracking the back of a bison with one fillet of my paw when I think of these things of my tiny wife with her smile sweetly ferocious, her breath balmy with new blood of my playful little ones, with eyes of topaz and claws of pearl when I think of all this, and feel that here I am, a damned rabbit sucker unicorn, don't swear, lion, why not, God knows, we've heard swearing enough of all sorts in our time, it isn't the fault of our position, 
if we're not first-rate perjurers, unicorn, that's true, still, though we are compelled to witness all these things in the courts of law, let us be above the influence of bad example, lion, give me the pot, courts of law, oh, lord, what places they put us into, and there they expect me me, the king of the animal world, to stand quietly upon my two hind legs, looking as mildly contemptible as an apoplectic dancing master, whilst iniquities, and meannesses, and tyranny, and give me the pot, unicorn, brother, you're getting warm, really, you ought to have seen enough of state and justice to take everything coolly, I certainly must confess that looking at much of the policy of the country, considering much of the legal wickedness of law scourged England it does appear to me a studied insult to both of us to make us supporters of the national quarterings, surely, considering the things that have been done under our noses, animals more significant of the state and social policy might have been promoted to our places, instead of the majestic lion and the graceful unicorn, might they not have had the lion, the vulture and the magpie, unicorn, excellent, the vulture would have capitally typified many of the wars of the state, their sole purpose being so many carcasses whilst, for the courts of law, the magpie would have been the very bird of legal justice and legal wisdom, lion, yes, but then the very rascality of their faces would at once have declared their purpose, the vulture is a filthy, and clean wretch the bird of Mars preying upon the eyes, the hearts, the entrails of the victims of that scoundrel mountebank, glory, whilst the magpie is a petty larceny vagabond, existing upon social theft, to use a vulgar phrase and considering the magistrates we are compelled to keep company with, Tis wonderful that we talk so purely as we do to it have let the cat too much out of the bag to have put the birds where we stand, whereas, there is a fine hypocrisy about us, consider am not I the type of heroism, of magnanimity, well, compelling me, the heroic, the magnanimous, now to stand here upon my hind legs, and now to crouch quietly down, like a pet kitten overfed with new milk. Any state roguery is passed off as the greatest piece of single-minded honesty upon the mere strength of my character if I may so say it, upon my legendary reputation. Now, as for you, though you are a lie, you are nevertheless not a bad-looking lie. You have a nice head, clean legs, and though I think it a little impertinent that you should wear that tuft at the end of your tail are altogether a very decent mixture of the quadrupeds. Besides, lie or not, you have helped to support the national arms so long, that depend upon it there are tens of thousands who believe you to be a true thing, unicorn, I have often flattered myself with that consolation, lion, a poor comfort, for if you are a true beast, and really have the attributes you are painted with, the greater the insult that you should be placed here, if, on the contrary, you are a lie, still greater the insult to a leonine majesty, enforcing me for so many, many years to keep such bad company, unicorn, but I have a great belief in my reality, besides, if the head, body, legs, tail, I bear, never really met in one animal, they all exist in several, hence, if I am not true altogether, I am true in parts, and what would you have of a thick and thin supporter of the crown, lion, blush, brother, blush, such sophistry is only worthy of the common pleas, where I know you picked it up, to be sure, if both of us were the most abandoned of beasts, we surely should have some excuse for our wickedness in the profligate company we are obliged to keep, unicorn, well, well, don't weep, take the pot, lion, have we not been, I, for hundreds of years, in both houses of parliament, unicorn, 
it can't be denied, lion and there, what have we not seen what have we not heard, what brazen, and blushing faces, what cringing, and bowing, and fawning, what scoundrel smiles, what ruffian frowns, what polished lying, what hypocrisy of patriotism, what philippics, leveled in the very name of liberty, against her sacred self, what orations on the benefit of starvation on the comeliness of rags, have we not heard selfishness speaking with a serene voice, have we not seen the haggard face of statecraft rouged up into a look of pleasantness and innocence, have we not, night after night, seen the national Jonathan Wilds need to plan a robbery, and the purse taken had they not rolled in their carriages home, with their fingers smelling of the people's pockets, unicorn, it's true true as an act of parliament, lion, then are we not obliged to be in the courts of law, in chancery to see the golden wheat of the honest man locked in the granaries of equity granaries where deepest rats do most abound whilst the slow fire of famine shall eat the vitals of the despoiled, and it may be the man of rightful thousands shall be carried to churchyard clay and parish deals, then in the bench, in the pleas there we are too, and there, see we not justice weighing cobwebs against truth, making too often truth herself kick the beam, unicorn, it has made me mad to see it, lion, turn we to the police offices there we are again, and there good God, to see the arrogance of ignorance, to listen to the vapid joke of his worship on the crime of beggary, to see the punishment of the poor to mark the sweet impunity of the rich, and then are we not in the old daily in all the criminal courts, have we not seen trials after dinner have we not heard sentences in which the bottle spoke more than the judge, unicorn, come, come, no libel on the ermine, lion, the ermine, in such cases, the fox the polecat, have we not seen how the state makes felons, and then punishes them for evil doing, unicorn, we certainly have seen a good deal that way, lion, and then the motto we are obliged to look grave over, unicorn, what do you at moan draw it, yes, that does sometimes come awkwardly in, God and my right, seeing what is sometimes done under our noses, now and then, I can hardly hold my countenance, lion, God and my right, what atrocity has that legend sanctified, and yet with demure faces they try men for blasphemy, give me the pot, unicorn, come, be cool be philosophic, I tell you we shall have as much need as ever of our stoicism, lion, what's the matter now, unicorn, the matter, why, the Torahs are to be in and peels to be minister, lion, then he may send for Mr. Cross for the Oran out and do take my place, for never again do I support him, Peel Minister, and Goulburn, I suppose Unicorn, Goulburn, Goulburn in the cabinet, if it be so, I shall certainly vacate my place in favor of a jackass, University of London, Bachelor of Medicine First Examination, 1841, the first examination for the degree of Bachelor of Medicine has taken place at the London University, and has raised itself to the level of Oxford and Cambridge, without doubt, it will soon acquire all the other attributes of the colleges, Town and down rows will cause perpetual confusion to the steady going inhabitants of Euston Square, steeple chases will be run, for the express delight of the members, on the waste grounds in the vicinity of the tall chimneys on the Birmingham Railroad, and in all probability, the whole of Bower Street, from Bedford Square to the New Road, will, at a period not far distant, be turfed and formed into a TYC, the property securing its title deeds under the arms of the university for the benefit of its legs the bar opposite the hospital presenting a fine leak to finish the contest over, with the uncommon advantage of immediate medical assistance at hand, 
the public press of the last week has duly blazoned forth the names of the successful candidates, and great must have been the rejoicings of their friends in the country at the event, but we have to quarrel with these journals for not more explicitly defining the questions proposed for the examinations the answers to which were to be considered the tests of proficiency, by means of the ubiquity which punch is allowed to possess. We were stationed in the examination room, at the same time that our double was delighting a crowded and highly respectable audience upon Tower Hill, and we had the unbounded gratification of offering an exact copy of the questions to our readers, that they may see with delight how high a position medical knowledge has attained in our country, selections from the examination papers, anatomy and physiology. 1. State the principal variations found in the kidneys procured at Evans's and the coal hole, and likewise name the proportion of animal fiber in the rump steaks of the above resorts. Mention, likewise, the change produced in the albumen, or white of an egg, by poaching it upon toast. 2. Describe the comparative circulation of blood in the body, and of the Lancet, Medical Gazette, and Bell's life in London, in the hospitals, and mention of Sir Charles Bell. The author of the Bridgewater Treatise on the Hand, is the editor of the last named paper, Medicine. 1. You are called to a fellow student taken suddenly ill. You find him lying on his back in the fender, his eyes open, his pulse full, and his breathing stirred always. His mind appears hysterically wandering, prompting various windmill-like motions of his arms, and an accompanying lyrical intimation that he, and certain imaginary friends, had no intention of going home until the appearance of daybreak. State the probable disease, and also what pathological change would be likely to be affected by putting his head under the cock of the cistern. 2. Was the Mount Hecla at the Surrey Zoological Gardens classed by Bateman in his work upon skin diseases if so? What kind of eruption did it come under? Where was the greatest irritation produced in the scaffold work of the erection? Or the bosom of the gentleman who lived next to the gardens, and had a private exhibition of rockets every night, as they fell through his skylight? and burst upon the stairs, 3, which is the most powerful narcotic opium, henbane, or a lecture upon practice of physic, and will a moderate dose of antimonial wine sweat a man as much as an examination at apothecary's hall, chemistry and natural philosophy, 1, does any chemical combination take place between the porter and ale in a pot of half and half upon mixture, is there a galvanic current set up between the pewter and the beer capable of destroying the equilibrium of living bodies, 2, Explain the philosophical meaning of the sentence, he cut away from the crushers as quick as a flash of lightning through a gooseberry bush. 3. There are two kinds of electricity, positive and negative, and these have a pugnacious tendency. A student, goes up to the college positive he shall pass. An examiner, thinks his abilities negative, and flummuxes him accordingly, afterwards meets alone, in a retired spot, where there is no policeman, and, to use his own expression, takes out the change, upon, in this case, which receives the greatest shock as, grinder, that hearing his pupil was plucked, or for doing it, for, the more crowded in assembly island the greater quantity of carbonic acid is evolved by its component members, state, upon actual experience, the percentage of this gas in the atmosphere of the following places, the concert state, the swan in Hungerford Market, the pit of the Adelphi, Hunts Billiard Rooms, and the Coliseum during the period of its balls. Animal Economy. 1. Mention the most liberal pawnbrokers in the neighborhood of Guy's and Bartholomew's, and state under what head of diseases you class the spring outbreak of dissecting cases and tooth-drawing instruments in their windows. 2. 
mention the cheapest tailors in the metropolis, and especially name those who charge you three pounds for dress coats, best Saxony, any other color than blue or black, and write down five in the bills to send to your governor. Describe the anatomical difference between a peacoat, a spencer, and a tagliani, and also state who gave the best, priish, for old ones, harvest prospects. Public attention being at this particular season anxiously directed to the prospects of the approaching harvest, we are enabled to allay before our readers some authentic information on the subject, notwithstanding the fears which the late and favorable weather induced. We have ascertained that reaping is proceeding vigorously at all the barbers' establishments in the kingdom. Several extensive chins were cut on Saturday last, and the returns proved most abundant. Sugar barley is a comparative failure, but that description of oats, called wild oats, promises well in the neighborhood of Oxford. Turn UPS have had a favorable season at the Acardi tables of several dowagers in the West End district. Beans are looking poorly particularly the have-beens whom we meet with seedy frocks and napless hats, gliding about late in the evenings. Clover, we are informed by some luxurious old codgers, who are living in the midst of it, was never in better condition. The best description of hops, it is thought, will fetch high prices in the hay market. The vegetation of wheat has been considerably retarded by the cold weather. Sportsmen, however, began to shoot vigorously on the 12th of this month. All things considered, though we cannot anticipate a rich harvest, we think that the speculators have exaggerated the punch's random recollections of the House of Lords, in humble imitation of the offer of the great metropolis, Mumbai the Duke of Wellington, before entering on this series of papers, I have only one request to make of the reader, which is this, that, however absurd or incredible my statements may appear, he will take them all for granted. It will hardly be necessary to apologize for making the hero of Waterloo the subject of this article, for, having had always free access to the parlor of the Duke of Wellington, I flatter myself that I am peculiarly fitted for the task I had undertaken. My acquaintance with the Duke commenced in a very singular manner. During the discussions on the Reform Bill, His Grace was often the object of popular pelting, and I was, on one occasion, among a crowd of freeborn Englishmen who, disliking his political opinions, were exercising the constitutional privilege of hooting him, fired by the true spirit of British patriotism, and roused to a pitch of enthusiasm by observing that the crowd were all of one opinion, decidedly against the Duke, worked up, too, with momentary boldness by perceiving that there was not a policeman in sight, I seized a cabbage leaf, with W.H.